0: Good morning, everyone. Mike is currently handing out um, what will appear to be a large wall of words that will uh explain itself and and you guys if you know me if you if you come to this church, you guys know how much I love maybe you don't know how much I love spreadsheets and charts organization I'm not an organized person, but I like my words to be right um, so that'll come to you in a in a minute i think mike is just handing it out so well welcome to any guests who are here this morning for our baby dedications or if you're just visiting us this morning and uh, we're excited to um thank god and celebrate our kids amen we uh we don't do that a lot in our world we often speak about children um as though they were liabilities or um you know, like they, that they, they do cost something, but we're mainly told to view ch- children as a risk. And so today we want to celebrate, right? We want to want to praise God for how how He's blessed us in that way, and just to take up that responsibility as a community, um, to raise our children as a as a village, as the saying goes, right? So we'll get into that after the message, and we're excited that you're here to join us for that. Um, you can open your Bibles up to matthew twenty four. And for those who are visiting, we um, started a series in the Gospel of Matthew a long time ago, and we got to matthew twenty four and so we we decided we needed some time to kind of get on the same page when it comes to the study of eschatology. what's What's the study of eschatology? and times, right? It's not cats, no. And so we skipped over 24, 25, we did 26, 27, 28, and then we came back to 24. And so we are in week three of our study of chapter 24. Um, I know that, uh, that it's taken a long time to get here, and we're just excited to be, able to be able to unpack this. So for the past couple of weeks, we've been studying Matthew 24 and 25, which is what the Bible calls the Olivet Discourse. It is a speech that Jesus gave while sitting on the mountain of olives specifically about the destruction of the temple as well as his return and so he's speaking privately with the disciples he's teaching them I imagine there may have been more of a conversation but I think they're just listening to what Jesus is saying and I can imagine that they are blown away and confused and they're just having their minds completely altered and shifted as We tend to, that's kind of our experience every time we think about eschatology and how the world will end, right? The study of Jesus' return is called eschatology. And this fancy word in the Greek is eschatos, which literally means the furthest or the last. And I have a slide that will come up with a, a list of terms. I could do it. Or not. That's fine. You could do it then. So let's have a couple of uh, terms because I know that we have a couple of visitors today. And so we just wanted to double back. But even for our own sake, it's nice to look at the word. So the word eschatology means the furthest or the last is the study of the furthest or the last days. In the church, this topic has a tradition of being equal parts controversial, uh, equal parts uh, scary. Who can relate to that? Equal parts scary. And equal parts confusing. And usually when we see controversy controversy or fear or confusion, we tend we tend to put our heads in the sand, right? Sometimes it's easier just to not look at it. We know that Jesus wins in the end, and so we just say, hey, it's too much. Why not just uh, wait and see how it pans out, right? But even though it can be controversial and scary, it speaks of one great truth, and it's this fact. And regardless of where you come from in your I guess in your theological journey, the truth is that Jesus has promised to return. Amen? He has promised to return to bring his people to himself. Last week, we introduced this concept that Jesus Christ and his people are the fulfillment of the temple. In the Old Testament, the Jews had a structure called the tabernacle. Another word for that is the tent of congregation. This was a temporary tent that they set up. Everywhere they traveled so that they could worship God. And eventually, King Solomon thought that it was important, based on his dad's relationship with God, to build a temple, a permanent tabernacle, so that they wouldn't have to set it up and take it down. They had made it to where they were going, right? So they didn't need to have it as a tent. So you can keep going with the slides. There's a couple bullets there. And so the temple the temple and the tabernacle were, were where people's God's people worshipped Jesus in the Old Testament, or God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, and so you may be asking me, what does the temple have to do with eschatology? And I would say it has everything to do with eschatology. The tabernacle and the temple were not houses where God lived, right? They were not structures that God dwelt in because God does not live in a house, right? The earth is called his what in the scripture? His footstool, right? God does not dwell in in buildings. He does not dwell in structures made of brick or wood or whatever materials that you may have. Rather, the temple represented God's presence amongst his people. It was his presence. And so today I want to introduce you to a new word. I, I brought it up in week one. I'll bring it back again today. It's the word perusia. Who's heard that word before? Yeah? The Greek word perusia means presence. Some versions translate it as coming, as in Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming, right? What will be the sign of your coming presence? The word "perusia" means presence. Is the Greek word for presence. And so, church, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this subject of eschatology is because this promise is so sure to us and so critical. And I say it again to us this morning. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming back, amen? Eschatology is not about numbers or dates or antichrist or marks of beasts but it is about god's presence it is about god's presence it is uh, about jesus our emmanuel god with us right and so church i ask you this morning can you think of anything more sweet to think about yes jesus christ put on flesh yes he died in our place yes he rose from the dead but what's the one thing he has not done yet what's the one thing he hasn't done yet Come back, he hasn't returned yet, right? I think sometimes what gets lost in this conversation is the fact that when Jesus returns, he will gather us to himself. And from that point on into eternity, we will never be apart from him. I think um, we get trapped in a lot of different things when it comes to eschatology. We lose sight of the fact that we will one day be with him and we will never be apart from him. Never, ever, ever, ever will you be apart from him. All of this, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return, all of it was done so that we would be with him, in his presence, worshiping him. That's what it was meant to be, right? That's what it was meant to be. Yes, there will be a new reality. There will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more weakness, no more suffering, no more fighting, no more tears. But all of that pale in comparison to the real prize, which, which is the fact that everyone who believes in Jesus will see him face to face when he returns and that you will never, ever, 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 I wrote that, again, not stop seeing him face to face. Amen? That's what eschatology is. And so the reason we study eschatology then, and the reason why Jesus wrote the Olivet Discourse in the first place, is to encourage us as we long for this day. Eschatology should create in us a longing a yearning, a desire for him to come back, right? It should create in us a hunger for our Lord who will one day return for us. And the challenge is that between when Jesus said those words and when he returns, we see in the scripture that a lot will take place. Surely there will be many joys and blessings along the way, but like we talked about last week, there will also be much pain, Some pain as a result of being a human being as we battle sickness and relationships. But some of that pain will also be in the same way that our Lord Jesus did it. Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, he's talking to the people and he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must enter many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The the promise of us being with Jesus forever and ever then ought to act like a tether that keeps us attached to God, that pulls us through the pain and suffering that we must go through as we await his return, right? We are in a way like the Israelites in the desert. We have been freed from our oppressor, and yet we walk towards our promised land, and we are in the middle, right? We're on our way there. We're not there yet, and one day... We'll get there. And so I hope this morning, as we look at Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, that we will be encouraged. Also note that today's message will not be exhaustive. There is a lot that will happen. I'm not going to really touch on anything that regards is related to the day of the Lord, which is the military, old testament military reference to the coming of the angels and the battle. Gog and Magog, I'm not going to really touch on that. That is an element of stuff that we'll get into at some point. Um, But today, we're just going to focus on kind of what we see in these three verses, and then we'll double back to some of that stuff. There's more that happens when Jesus comes back. So I'm going to read the text for you, and it'll be on the screen. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Holy Ghost, we ask that you this morning would um, glorify your son Jesus, or glorify the son Jesus who this speaks about, and Jesus sent you, and you dwell in us, and you help us to understand your word, and you testify to Jesus, and so I pray that you would um, help us to worship Jesus this morning, and to await his return with lots of hope in our hearts even in the midst of a lot of painful things that we will see we must go through. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So I'm just going to go through it verse by verse. And the first chunk that we're going to look at is Matthew 24, verses 29 to the start of 30. And it says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And so, if you recall last week, we looked at the destruction of the temple in what year? 70 AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Even though Israel and Rome had a fairly peaceful relationship at some point, things would not always go so well when men like Nero or Domitian or Caligula turned to persecute both the Jews and Christians alike. In 70 AD, which was about 40 years after Jesus' death, the Romans under the rule of Emperor Vespasian invaded Jerusalem and they killed how many people? Do You guys remember? Over a million. 1.1 million people. And then what else did they do? They sacked the temple. They destroyed the temple. And they fulfilled what Jesus said in verse 2, which is that there will not be... One, what, left on top of another stone. We um, looked at our room here, and we used the the dimensions, and so we remembered um, that the stones in the temple were almost the width of this room, from that counter to this wall, maybe from that front row to the back of this wall. And because the temple was coated in raw gold that shimmered on the surface as the nations approached it from all directions, and the fire was set to the temple, the temple melted all of the gold, and so the Roman soldiers turned the stones over so as to retrieve the, the liquid gold that was running into the cracks, right? So not one stone was left on top of another. What Jesus predicted literally happened, and it was abominable, right? It was absolutely devastating as over a million Jewish men and women were killed and as many more thousands were um, taken as slavery uh, into slavery or um, sold off to other people. And yet we also believe that while the Bible contains many of these literal stories that happen to men and women in history, those stories often repeat themselves as God tells the story of His redemption. And this is what I introduced in week one and two as the theological concept of recapitulation, where topics are introduced and then we see those themes, brought back in future stories. And so when we look at verse 29, while something devastating happened in the, in the temple in 70 AD, we see that something actually worse happens in God's new temple, which is God's body of people that consists of both Jews and Gentiles who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible refers to this event as the Great Tribulation. And the Great Tribulation looks a lot like human history, where God's people suffer for their faith in Jesus and where creation groans and awaits her Lord's return. However, the Bible teaches us that there will also be a great climax where persecution increases and believers of Jesus are increasingly imprisoned and murdered for their faith in the risen lamb. And so we talked about the the labor pains and in labor baby comes eventually, right? Ideally. And just like contraction pain that happens during labor, there must be a climax where labor ends and baby enters into the world. In history, we look back and time is divided, right? B.C. A.D. I know that's not the maybe the term that's used in modern academia, but historically we would say B.C. A.D. And what divides that? What's the event that divides those? It's Jesus' birth, right? So A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, right? In history, we celebrated our first advent when Jesus came into the world as a baby. I love how John S. Dwight, the author of O Holy Night, described it in 1847. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That was the first advent that he's describing there. And yet theologians speak of something even bigger that is to come, which they would call the second advent. In the first advent, we see that creation aligns itself to celebrate its coming king. Matthew chapter 2 verse 2 says, Um, As the men who come from the east to worship Jesus, it says, "Who is he? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. In the second advent, we see a similar thing, except in a significantly more dramatic way. Creation aligns itself even before us, right? Even if you don't worship, what will cry out? The stones, the rocks will cry out. His creation knows him and is awaiting its king. In the second advent, we see a significantly more dramatic thing that happens. And so verse 29 says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Do you guys remember a time in the book of Matthew where something like this happened? Think back. Technically, it would be forward in the text, but... Think back in the weeks. So, what happens when Jesus dies? What do we see? The non-teachers in the room. <laughs> what do we see? Temple. The veil in the temple splits. So what else happens? Pardon me. Darkness. Right. The land goes dark. The earth quakes. The temple is rocked. And even um, the Gentile soldier said, "Truly, this was the Son of God." They acknowledged. When they saw that creation quaked for her king, right? However, this is not the first time it's mentioned. So if you look at the chart I handed to you guys, we see that creation or nature falling apart are foreshadowed and predicted when the Lord comes back at his perusia. And so you're going to see a lot of Old Testament references this morning. And it's not because I just want to show you guys how many Old Testament verses I know. I don't actually know all these off the back of my hand or anything. But I want to show you guys that that the things and even the language that's used is not new. When we get to this part in Matthew, if we are scholars of the scriptures, we will see that this language has been used again and again and again. And then when you go past Matthew, it gets used again and again. And then you get to Revelation, and you see it again. Almost the same language used over and over and over. And so Isaiah 13, which will be on the screen, verse 10, says it like this. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Same thing, right? It's the same event. Next slide, Joel chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. I know we don't get into books like Joel, right? We're not reading Nahum or Obadiah or Amos or Joel for fun. But Joel chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, and I put this here to show you that there is substance, and even in those little ones, that have two, three chapters that are wedged in there, right? Joel chapter 2, verses 10 to 11 says, The earth quakes before them, The the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Same language, right? Sky is getting dark. Stars are falling from the sky. Sun stops working. Moon stops working. Islands are getting ripped up. Things are happening. Creation being undone is seen, is seen during all of the labor pains in human history and is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So by the time we get to Revelation 6 and 8 and 12, we see that John is using similar language. And so when we get there, we shouldn't be surprised. Revelation 6, verses 12 to 14, says this. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And I love this verse here. It says, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Can you imagine the sky rolling up like a scroll? It's hard to, even in your mind, to just sit there and think and imagine it being rolled up like a scroll. It's almost, it almost seems like he's speaking cavalier, right? The way you would roll up a piece of paper. So I think any one of us could roll up a piece of paper, but imagine if that was the sky. It's hard to even imagine, right? All of these things in creation and nature, earthquakes, the sky getting dark, stars falling and more are all referred to as the sign of the Son of Man because they precede Jesus' coming and show us that immediately as these things things take place, then something amazing will happen after this. So let's keep going here. Let's look at verse 30. And there's the thing that happens before that. It says, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So once again, while nature undoing itself was predicted in the Old Testament, so is the reaction of people who will cry when Jesus returns. I think in this case, like us, we cry for two reasons, right? Sometimes we cry because of Sorrow and anguish and pain, and sometimes we cry tears of joy, right? Relief, maybe both, right? Zechariah chapter 12 said it like this, and I will pour out on the house of David, right, house of David, temple. You're seeing the the strings? And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for our firstborn son. So by the time you get to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, look at what it says. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him, right? It's the same language, right? It's the same language. But then there's also the thing that happens when you look up and you see Jesus in the sky and that is not the one you've been worshiping, right? There's another reaction when the Son of Man appears in the sky and and comes on the clouds. And so... Before, earlier today, I, I quoted Revelation 6, verses 12 to 14, which described the, the, the experience of, of nature folding itself up and the sky rolling up like a scroll. But if you keep reading into verse 15, this is what it says. In reaction to nature unfolding or unhinging or un, being undone, upset at your lord coming that you look to a mountain and you're like fall on me crush me right where i stand imagine having that great fear right One second. and even though we who put our faith in jesus who put our faith in the lamb of god um, are not fearful of his wrath this should say something to us this morning right this should say something to us. This should show us something that there is something major coming, right? In both cases, everyone, whether you believe in Jesus or not, everyone will see the Son of Man coming and will react to him either with joy or gloom or relief, just like it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, which says. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Amen? In heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every, every single tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will see him. Everyone will react. And so let's keep going. Let's look at the third part. Of verse 30 says and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory like we learned last week in verse 27 which said this for as the lightning comes from east and shines as far as the west so will the coming or the perusia of the son of man be you guys remember in the book of acts who's read through the book of acts lately Maybe I know some of us have been reading it. And after the disciples ascend to the sorry, after the disciples watch Jesus ascend to the right hand of God in the sky, they're standing there, right? They're like, Where'd he go? And what do the angels say to him? You put it up on the slide. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come. I emphasis added, Perugia in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He ascended, then one day he will descend, right? Of course, it's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. This is how Daniel described it in his vision. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, In my vision I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the what? The clouds of heaven. And so, church, I want to remind us this morning that Jesus' return will be a universal and cosmic event. Whether you're indoors or outdoors, or you're in China, or Papua New Guinea, or Timbuktu, or you're in Oshawa. You could be in a spaceship orbiting the earth, or on the first spaceship going to Mars. You could be in a submarine plumbing the depths of the ocean, whether it's nighttime and you're sleeping in your bed, or it's 12 noon and you're eating a sandwich, Whether you're 80 years old in a nursing home or a three-month-old baby nursing, you will see the Son of Man when he returns. Amen? Everyone will see him. Everyone, everywhere, at the same time. Time zones do not matter. There is no delay. California will not see it three hours later. That's not how it works. Time doesn't matter. Right? Time will cease to matter. And where do we see him coming from? It says that he will emerge from the sky on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. Power and glory. Church, how glorious will this day be? Can you even start to wrap your head around it? You know, as human beings, we daydream about a lot. I don't know if you guys daydream. I daydream a shocking amount, right? With open or closed eyes, many of us dream about glorious days to come. Some of us daydream about owning a home. The Millennials said amen, right? Many women and men have daydreamed about having kids or retiring, right? Or maybe you've dreamed about what it will be like to be reunited with a loved one, right? Who can relate to that? Some of you are daydreaming about that snack table (laughs) that will be available soon, I hope. I encourage you, church, in the same way that you hope and yearn for other good things, I pray that you would also dream about Jesus' return, that you would daydream about Jesus' return, that you would yearn for his return, that you will hope for it. So while none of us here have seen people flying in the clouds or emerging from the sky, while none of us have seen Jesus' face, much less an angel or an army of angels, I pray that we would yearn for Jesus' return. I pray that there would be a hunger, a, a hope, a desire. You know, I think that there's times, if we're honest, that we don't want him to come back right? It can be scary. Maybe you're not right with God. And so I encourage anybody who does, not, who does not believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is God, that he is Savior, that he's King, Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who is described here. If you do not believe that he has died for your sins, if you do not believe that he is risen from the dead, if you do not believe that, that you can be saved by him this morning, I, I, I encourage you, I implore you, forcefully to believe in the son of man who will come back one day right because he's our only source of hope and anyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved and so if you want to discuss that afterwards come hang out with me afterwards or any of the other pastors and or anybody you came with even who is a christian and they would be very happy to walk you through that let's look at verse 31 there's only one verse left Verse 31 says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And so here we see a couple of really powerful images that I want to break down. Most of it is in the Matthew 29, or sorry, 24, 29 to 31 section that we're studying today. But some stuff I think is really important, and I'm going to pull it from other texts, as you can see on the charts. And I also want to say that I know that, you know, when it comes to topics like the rapture and the end times, it can get really controversial and that we have different views about these things. And so um, I understand that, but we're going to present our view on this, right? And so first, the Bible describes what we see here in the text, a loud trumpet call, Right? Now, I'm not saying this morning that a big trumpet's gonna emerge from heaven. I'm not even saying that it's gonna be a trumpet sound, right? Per se, I don't know. But the Bible describes a loud trumpet call. And once again, this is not new in the Bible. Joel chapter 2, verse 1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all of the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. The reason why we're able to quote these Old Testament books is because they all refer to the day of the Lord. And I don't just mean figuratively. They all literally say the day of the Lord, right? And so you see similar language, similar references. We can start to tie these things up and, and, and create connections in the text, right? Paul also talks about the trumpet as well in his writings. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. And if you have time to read chapter 4, Actually, read all of 1 Thessalonians, but if you have time or you don't have time and you only want to read this section, read chapter 4 because it touches on eschatology. But verse 16 says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, right? I have no idea what that means. I don't know what it sounds like. I'm not going to stand here and say, this is what it sounds like. I'm not going to compare it to something in our society. I have no idea. All I know is you will hear it. <laughs> you're going to know it's him. You're not going to be like, what's that? <laughs> you're going to see. You're going to hear. It is going to hit every single, single one of your senses. You will know. You will not be confused. I promise. And 1 Corinthians 15 also has similar language if you want to read it. The references on the chart. And so we see in the text that there's a trumpet call. The second thing we see is that the Bible mentions that God sends his angels to gather his elect from the four winds. And so we know that winds blow north, they blow south, they blow west, they blow east. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he will send his angels to get his elect from everywhere. Both those who are currently not alive and those who are currently alive, the dead and alive. And so we have to ask ourselves, what happens to the believers who are currently dead? I know many of you have asked that question. What happens to those people when Jesus comes back? If you recall, last week I introduced, if you were in, the, in, the, in here, or you were here with us that morning, I introduced a story from Revelation 11 that talks about the temple of God being uh, abominated and desolated by um, those who hate the Lamb. And I read a horrific story of the temple of Christ. Um, the people of God who are being murdered for their faith. And so I read verses 8 to 11, which says this. It's on the screen. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presence because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth these two prophets we see in the text refer to um, both jews and gentiles who have the same job of testifying to the nations how to be saved which we believe is through the son of god i mentioned last week that that was quite a dark way to end our service and that's where we ended if you recall But I promised this morning to finish the story. And so let's look at verse 11. This is what it says. But after three and a half days, a breath of of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Now, of course, I'm not saying this morning that all Christians will be killed in the end. Even in history, not all believers died by persecution. There were many who have died from natural causes, sickness or even accidents the bible teaches us that these brothers and sisters who have passed away the, the text described them as people who are are asleep which is a really simple way of saying they closed their eyes and didn't wake up they are asleep i'm not teaching about purgatory or anything this morning i'm just saying that that's a, te- a text that is used to refer to people who have passed away but the bible teaches that these dead brothers and sisters whether they died from cancer or by persecution will be resurrected when Jesus comes back. And so Paul says it like this, and I read this verse already, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are believers of Jesus will rise from the dead first. Right? Paul adds on to that in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And he says, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And so if you understand 1 Corinthians 15, earlier in that chapter, he actually uses the word imperishable a bunch to refer to their resurrected bodies, bodies that cannot perish. And so we can conclude from the text that the dead will be resurrected, and glorified once the trumpet or the sound or the cry of a command comes from the sky. And so that's those who were dead. But now let's talk about those who are currently alive. And so if Jesus were to come during this this church meeting, we would say everyone who's passed away will be resurrected in their new bodies. And then us, who are alive. 1 Corinthians 15.51 teaches that Christians who are still alive when the trumpet is blown and Jesus emerges from the sky, won't will not die, but we will be transformed into our imperishable bodies. Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Right? We shall all be changed. And so now we have a picture, and I hope you guys are tracking with me. All the believers, past and present, are alive. We are either raised from the dead or we are alive. we were alive before. We have our new bodies. And then what happens? This is where we get the biblical teaching of the rapture. So I know that the rapture is one of those really controversial topics. People debate about it, about when it'll happen, and pre trib, mid trib, post trib. The book series Left Behind by Tim LaHaye points a a picture or paints a picture of Christians being raptured before the tribulation, leaving behind a dark world where for seven years, Jewish virgins are sent into the world to evangelize those who do not believe in Jesus. And we're told to imagine a world where where people who are driving cars are raptured out of their cars. And cars are crashing on the 401 into the cars of other people who did not get raptured. And uh, airplanes fall from the sky, right? I believe that this teaching is unfounded in the scripture. I think we have seen quite clearly that God's people will not be exempt from tribulation whether it's by ways of natural disasters or persecution, Jesus never once promises that he will protect our bodies from anything, whether it's cancer or a car crash or persecution or imprisonment. Our Lord Jesus himself was not exempt from it, and neither were the men and the women and children in history who have died from starvation in jail or or who were sawn in half or burnt alive or stoned. Remember, Paul says it is through much hardship that we must enter into the kingdom of God. And so what I believe the the, the Bible teaches about the rapture goes like this. First, we believe that believers will suffer both as human beings and as followers of Jesus Christ. Right? Suffering. We believe that, next point, in the end, events will climax as the earth is undone and many Christians are murdered for their faith. Then point three, at the perfect time, Jesus will emerge from the sky. With his angels at the sound of a trumpet, and then point four, dead believers will come back to life and given new bodies, while current believers who are still alive are also given their new bodies. And then this happens. Continuing in Revelation 11, back to that story after the believers raised from the dead in the midst of their enemies, Revelation 11:12 says, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to the heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. How cool does that sound? Not that coolness is the measure of it, but I don't know. I don't know how you read that and you, just, you can't just read that and then move on with your life. You can't just read something like that and move on with your day or your week or your life, Right? Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, he keeps on going in that chapter and says, then we who are alive, who are left, those who are still alive, will be caught up together with them, those who rose from the dead, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with our Lord. And so I want to close on that note there. It's the note I started on and the note we will end on today. The last few words of verse 17 says that, and you see it on your screen. And so we will always be with the Lord. All of this, all of what we discussed today and have discussed over the past week, all of the book of Revelation, all of the gospel, all of God's word points to this truth. Jesus suffered and died in our place, rose from the dead, and one day will return for this very reason that we would always be with him. And I want to I want to just drill that into your minds. Your, your Savior, your Lord Jesus loves you and is coming back for you. Right? He will return not just to do stuff, but he is coming to get you. There's other things he has to do too, but he's coming back. Brothers and sisters, in the creation, there will be many blessings that we should look forward to. But I have the audacity this morning to say all of them. Every single one of them pale in comparison to the fact that we will always be with the Lord. He will see us face to face. We will see him face to face. We will see each other face to face. And together we will worship him. We will walk with him. We will enjoy his presence forever and forever and ever and ever. And if we had more time, I would keep on going. And that's it, right? Amen. So let's, let's bow our heads and pray, and um, we will celebrate our babies. Jesus Christ, this word that you give to us is about your presence. You are with us this morning. You are with us in our lives. You are with us as we sit here. You are with us as we raise our hands in worship. You are with us as we read and learn from your text. You are with us as we leave You're with us as we celebrate our children this morning. And yet one day, you will be with us even in an even greater way. And so God, I pray that you help us to daydream and and to hope and yearn for your return. We're waiting for you, Jesus. That as we wait, I pray that you would make us faithful to you. That when we see you in the sky, that we would not shrink away, but that we would be able to raise our heads and square our shoulders up and celebrate and cheer and cry relief because you have fulfilled this promise that you have made to us this morning and that you did to your disciples years ago. So God, as we enter back into the world and we have to suffer many hardships to enter into your kingdom, please help us to persevere. Please help us to hope in you so that when you do come back, we can be confident and not shrink away. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.